So in John chapter 20, we want to jump right in and uh, take a look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, uh, and uh, what it means to us. John 20, verse 1, now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter, to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, first within that section, uh, you take note of the first day of the week. Uh, This is the Lord's day, Sunday, the day that he rose from the dead. And the church has historically honored this as the day of worship. It's why we call it the Lord's Day, that first day of the week. It's also uh, commonly referred to uh, in ancient texts as the eighth day. It's the beginning of the new week. And uh, when we look at the scripture, uh, we see Jesus uh, there in the new beginning of the church. And, you know, that first day uh, demonstrating to us the newness Uh, that we have in him. So while he starts a new week with his resurrection and starts the new brand of the church, uh, believers uh, following him, uh, we have that opportunity in Christ to be the new day, to be the new creation, to be born again, as he described it in John chapter 3. So his resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. Without the resurrection, Paul himself very clearly states in Corinthians how useless our faith would be if there was not a resurrection. There are so many different belief systems in the world. You could choose any number of them that would be good or bad or something in between. Uh, This is the truth of God and his message and his desire for humanity and the new life provided is the thing that is come to us through resurrection. Now, Mary Magdalene mentioned there, there are a lot of rumors about her. Even in today's culture, we hear all kinds of things that are not biblical. And it mostly does uh, diminish the scripture, her character, even Jesus character is tarnished by some of the lies that are promoted in the world today regarding Mary Magdalene. Um, The first thing I want to remind us of, Luke chapter 8 verse 2, says Mary called uh, Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. This this woman was demon-possessed at one point, and upon uh, meeting and knowing Jesus, she was delivered uh, from that demonic state of existence and given this new life. We see her repeatedly in the Scripture expressing just the deepest relationship with our Lord. And that's because she was delivered from such horrific state of existence and given the newness and the freedom in Christ. The Word of God telling us that he who is forgiven much loves much. Mary was one of those. One of the false things that's taught about Mary Magdalene is that she was a prostitute. Not that the Scripture does not embrace prostitutes. The Scripture very much 
loves them. The Lord delivers them, assists them, you know, has his relationship of acceptance uh, with them, bringing them to repentance and delivering them from their own sin, just as he has me and probably you also. But uh, there is no place in the scripture that records Mary as having been a prostitute. That's a tradition that comes from the Roman Catholic institution, uh, not the Word of God. Now, uh, lastly, in that section, it says you know, that she went to the tomb. This affection, this relationship, this deep love for Jesus Christ causes her to go while it is still dark. And there's something about that. Uh, the, the differences we find in the Gospels should not be thought of as contradictions. Um, they are the points of view. And that isn't you know, like our modern culture says, oh, well, you know, that's your truth. Uh, that's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, one person experienced certain things. Another person experienced other things. And when we put all of those accounts together, we get one very consistent account of the truth that occurred in Jesus' life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. They were what those individuals experienced with Christ. Uh, Mary, first to the tomb. She's got this relationship with the Lord that gets her up while it's still dark, and she prepares herself and she heads there in order to anoint his body because he was buried in such haste. I was praying about this. I thought of Isaiah chapter 26, verse 9, that says, With my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. When we have that relationship with the Lord that stirs us even while we sleep and awakens us early and we go and seek the Lord the beginning of our day, it makes the rest of the day go so much differently. It makes the world around us a better place when we will rise early and go and seek the one who has been resurrected. Now, it also says there the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Uh, almost every year at the resurrection, I recommend uh, Max Licato's book, He Still Moves Stones. Uh, the reason for the removal of the stone was so that people could see into the tomb. It's often thought in an immature sense of our growth and becoming a Christian that the stone was moved out of the way so that Jesus could get out of the tomb. And in fact, what we see is that he's completely unrestricted by things of that nature from this point forward. The end of this chapter, he's appearing and disappearing out of rooms when the door is locked and closed. So he's not restricted by the stone that's at the tomb, but certainly Mary and the others would have been. As they came to the tomb, if the stone is in place, they can't see the resurrection. Perhaps you have things in your life that need to be moved out of the way in order for you to see the resurrection the way that you should, in order to understand who Jesus Christ is and have the experience with him that's so necessary. Now, the end of that section, Simon Peter and the other disciple, John has found Peter. Uh, Peter 
had denied Jesus three times and fled in shame. And now we see that Peter and John are together. And she makes that statement um, at the end uh, where she says, They have taken away the Lord. Uh, you hear about uh, the conspiracies a lot right now, especially they, them. What have they done? What are they doing? And in the end, we don't have to be concerned about those things. Mary has this thought that there's a conspiracy in Jesus' disappearance. They have taken Jesus, and I don't know where he is. You know, I don't know what they have done with him. You want to let your heart be comforted by the Scripture. You always remember Psalm 37 when our hearts and our minds begin to think along these lines. The whole chapter is dealing with men who have evil intentions and how it affects us. But particularly, I'll read the first three verses of Psalm 37, verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Feed on His faithfulness. Let your soul, your heart, your mind be nourished and nurtured by the strength, stability, truth, nature of God rather than all of the circumstances that are swirling around us, especially at this present time. There's no way any of us is going to know all the details. We'll have our suspicions. We may even have our very strong opinions, but in the end, we don't really know. We're as much a victim of all of what's going on as anyone else. Back in John chapter 20, looking at verse 3, it says, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also. He saw and believed. For as they did not know the scripture, for as yet rather they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead then the disciples went away again to their own homes. John writes in the third person throughout the book of John, referring to himself as the other disciple, and he makes sure we know that he outran Peter in going to the tomb. But he does also accurately record that he one, didn't understand. He saw, but it wasn't with an understanding of what he was experiencing there at first. He, he didn't have that understanding. And uh, he also didn't go into the tomb, as I said. Peter goes right into the tomb. This issue of seeing 
but not understanding is actually quite prominent throughout this section. You're going to see that uh, over and over again, where they see, but they don't understand. They see, and they don't understand. You know, we will often say that, you know, people say, you know what I mean? Oh, I see what you're saying, when we really don't. Uh, here, there's an open admission that they don't understand. Uh, the handkerchief that's uh, described here is interesting, uh, being, uh, you know, separated. Uh, to this day, uh, the Orthodox Jews, when someone is murdered, they will immediately cover their face. And uh, it's to protect their identity. They, they want to make sure that the families get informed before it becomes public knowledge. They also have that sense of it, it's a shameful thing uh, to be murdered. It's a shameful thing to experience this type of death. So Jesus has that shroud over his face, and then he's, his whole body is wrapped. It's a uh, significant thing that the cloths that had uh, wrapped him are all there, seemingly not unwound, uh, uh, you know, as though it's all in one piece, and he's just escaped it miraculously, and yet the cloth that was on his face is outside of that wrapping, set and folded by itself. You can make of that whatever you need to. Again, it closes uh, toward the end of that section by saying he saw and believed. So Peter having gone in. John arrives, stoops down, looks, sees, but doesn't understand. Peter goes straight into the tomb, and then he believed. He believed in the resurrection. He had seen under close examination what was there, and that spoke to him more clearly. John could see from the outside that Jesus has been you know, taken, as Mary is thinking. He's missing from the location that he should be in, but he doesn't have the understanding that there's a resurrection that has taken place. Peter goes in and under close examination understands the resurrection. Again, there's a challenge within that for those of us that have, you know, seemingly sort of brushed past the resurrection of Jesus Christ without close examination. Maybe we even mock it because we haven't taken the time to understand what's there. You should examine the evidence that's in the scripture and the things that we have that give us the understanding of Jesus Christ's literal resurrection. They did not know the scripture, it says, uh, as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Uh, it's interesting uh, that his disciples did not uh, remember what he had said, but his enemies did. Uh, you might want to make note of Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 and 63. After Jesus had been crucified, it says, On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees who had crucified him gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, how that deceiver, speaking of Jesus, said, after three days I will rise. So they have it in their mind that Jesus Christ had insisted he was going to rise from the dead. His disciples 
are so focused on the idea that Jesus is going to be the king and they're going to receive some kind of authoritative position within his kingdom that they're not looking for a resurrection. So when this news comes, and even when they go, and at first glance they look in upon the tomb, they don't have the understanding that Jesus is resurrected because they're not looking for it. His enemies were looking for it, saying that deceiver said after three days all rise. But his disciples weren't looking for it. Interesting anomaly there. Uh, Again, uh, John 20, verse 11, But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. So here we know that Peter and John have gone away to their own homes. Mary stays there and is examining more closely the circumstances that she's experiencing. Stooped down, looked into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Again, she has that mindset of there are people with bad intentions involved in my life who have taken the body of Jesus away. They, the generic they, have taken the body away. She sees the angels, but again doesn't have the understanding of Jesus' resurrection. That statement of, they have taken away my Lord, uh, it it is a, a thing where, you know, right now a lot of people are experiencing death. And, you know, we have the normalcy of life and people's passing going on, and right now the added fear and experience of people passing away in our culture. And it can lead your heart to be in despair. I think of the period of time to reference Isaiah when King Uzziah had led such great reforms in the nation of Israel and everyone was so hopeful for the you know, about face that the nation was taking. They had been plunging into sin and idolatry and Uzziah comes and begins to bring this reform and everybody's so happy with what it's producing in their country and then Uzziah dies. And it leaves them in a place of despair. The prophet records Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Many times people read that passage and they just sort of gloss over Uzziah's death, looking at it more like it's just a time marker. Isaiah wants to more tell us about the Lord sitting on his throne, and and he's just telling us uh, that Uzziah died, and that's when he had this vision. That's not what's going on at all. Isaiah is bewailing the fact that Uzziah has passed. You know, a king that in their mind was going to lead them to greater things, suddenly taken from their midst. You know, you consider uh, Jesus and the apostles thinking that he was going to set up his kingdom and they would be given positions of authority and then suddenly crucified. 
Maybe right now you're just reeling with the fact that someone you've loved and you've relied upon and you've looked up to has gone from your life. And and you're in a place of absolute despair. You have to pick your eyes up from those circumstances. You have to. It'll cripple you. It'll destroy you. You have to see the Lord sitting on His throne. Mary is looking right at two angels and not recognizing what's right in front of her. Maybe we're missing what's right in front of us and what it is that the Lord is trying to minister to us with. Look at verse 14. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus. That's not with understanding. She saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So again, she doesn't know who this is, uh, and there's any number of reasons why. Um, You can do your own personal study on that. Uh, Some speculate uh, that it's because Jesus is so scarred from the scourging and the beating and the crucifixion that his actual appearance is unrecognizable. Uh, Others say that it's simply because Jesus is masking himself supernaturally. Even uh, more say that it's because he's in his glorified state, that his body is now uh, you know, more beautiful than she's ever seen it and more you know, handsome in his appearance, and so therefore she doesn't recognize him. Whatever it is, she doesn't recognize Jesus for who he is. It could just be the impossibility of grief. Uh, he may look exactly like the Jesus she's always remembered. She's just so focused on the thought that Jesus is dead, that she wouldn't be thinking for one second that he would be alive standing there speaking to her. Uh, The understanding is robbed of her in this moment. She makes that statement at the end, you know, I will take him away. This little woman is going to carry away this large man on her own. She's that dedicated to caring for Jesus in whatever circumstance he's in. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, notice the exclamation point. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. That's how you would translate that. The personal address of Jesus to her had all the tone of relationship that caused her to immediately recognize who he was. I bet that many of us have had those experiences with the Lord where we were seeking and looking and praying and then the personal communication comes and we suddenly understand that the Lord is with us and is speaking to us. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Now this statement of do not cling to me should not be misinterpreted. It's simply Jesus saying, you don't have to hold on to me. It isn't him saying I'm 
so holy you can't touch me. It's not as some have taught that he's a ghost and so therefore there's nothing for her to cling to. It's very clear in the Greek language that what he's saying is I'm not going to leave yet. I have been resurrected from the dead and you don't need to cling to me as though I'm going to leave you again immediately. You know, within this is the idea of her having lost Jesus once, now he's there, she's going to grab a hold of him and never let go again. She, she doesn't need to do that because he's going to be with her for 40 days ministering amongst all of these believers before he ascends into heaven. So you're not going to lose me the way that you lost me at the crucifixion is all that he's saying. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples, uh, that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. If you just move forward in the passage, there's a little bit that's lost. The parallel gospel of Luke in chapter 24, verse 11 says, And their words seemed like idle tales and they did not believe them. When Mary came and told the followers of Jesus that he had been resurrected from the dead and that she had seen him, uh, they thought that she was crazy. They thought she was making up a story, that it was not anything to pay attention to, that she was just speaking about the fantastic. You know, you probably uh, have had that experience with friends or family where you relay to them your experience with the Lord. You relate to them the changes that have occurred in your life, and they just brush it off as some nonsensical story that you're telling them. In time, these people are going to see, literally, Jesus Christ resurrected. Uh, we discover in uh, 1 Corinthians later that there was an occasion where 500 of them were gathered together all at once, and Jesus appeared to them all at once. So Jesus will reveal himself to the people that it's necessary at this time. And so it is in your life. If people reject your account of Jesus' presence and working in your life, don't be disheartened with that. It's up to Jesus Christ to reveal himself to them. Be faithful, as Jesus said here, to go and tell the brethren, to go and tell those that need to hear but their reception of the message is between them and the Lord. We need to trust the Holy Spirit and His work in their lives. 20 verse 19, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Again, same day, Jesus comes to them, and they're all huddled together out of fear. Fear of the Jews. They crucified Jesus. They're probably going to come hunt us down and imprison us, punish us, perhaps even kill us. So they're afraid of the authorities in this circumstance. Notice that while the door was locked, Jesus just appears in their midst. He's no longer confined by the rules of this world, 
of this state of existence. He can pass in and out of rooms at will from one location to the next with the speed of thought. So he's living at this point in an entirely different state of existence than he had previously during his earthly ministry. That statement in verse 19, peace be with you. When you recognize that Jesus Christ is with you, it will give you peace. You can be as frantic as anything right now about coronavirus and how it's affecting your job and how it's affecting your children's education and how it's affecting your home life and how it's affecting your trips to the grocery store. If we'll take the time to recognize that Jesus is with us, it will give you peace. Now, I, I know uh, two days ago, my wife and I made a trip to the grocery store and we had spent the morning hearing from the Lord. And uh, when we went to the grocery store, we were in a good mood. Uh, we're kind of bouncing around and getting the things that we need and doing, we're not being, you know, um, unnecessarily uh, you know, uncautious. We're, we're taking uh, the steps we should, but I look up at one point and realize there's a whole bunch of people around us that are deeply offended because we're enjoying ourselves. You know, I toned it down at that point and, and tried to be considerate of their current state of mind. But I recognized this, that the Lord was with us. The Lord had spoken to us, ministered to us, and we were experiencing the peace of the Lord. We were doing what we needed to do to be cautious, but we didn't have to function under the impending doom and the cloud of fear that everyone else around us was functioning with. The peace that the Lord brings us is a great thing when we will let it work in our lives. That statement uh, that says he showed them his hands and his side. You know, evidence of a crucifixion. Uh, much like I said moments ago about uh, you know, Mary not recognizing Jesus, he still has the scars. He shows them his hands. He shows them his side where they had thrust in the blade and uh, proved that he was dead. Uh, glad when they saw the Lord, it says, as you will be too. When you recognize the Lord, when you are looking for the Lord, when you see the Lord appear in the clouds and come for us, you'll be glad at his arrival and at his presence. 20 verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So there's the commission. It's certainly to the apostles, but it applies to us also. As the Lord has sent them, uh, he sent us. We've all been sent out with this message. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Rejoice, or excuse me, rejoice, receive rather the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So uh, Jesus' presence, again declaring this peace to them, uh, sending them out as ministers, he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now listen, uh, this is a controversial subject for some people because they become so convinced that where the apostles received 
the Holy Spirit was in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, when they began to speak in tongues. The baptism of the Spirit occurs there. And I'm not denying anything about the baptism of the Spirit that the Scripture records. What I am saying is that these men received the Holy Spirit here when Jesus breathed on them. How do I know that they received the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit. The minute that somebody starts trying to shuffle the deck, yeah, Jesus said that they were going to receive the Spirit, but is that really where they received the Holy Spirit? Is that what the Scripture says or not? Do we trust the Word of God or do we trust our tradition and now we're trying to force the Word of God to be obedient to our tradition? Let the Word of God speak for itself, defend itself, establish itself. So here where Jesus breathed on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, you need to examine this issue in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He said a similar thing to the disciples much earlier when they were having a discussion about who everyone thought he, Jesus, was. He asked the question of the apostles, you know, what do people, so who do people say that I am? And the opinions come flying out, and who do you say I am? And Peter is the one that makes a confession, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the God. And, you know, he makes the, the point that, you know, that hasn't been taught to you by any man. You've learned that from the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, you know, upon this rock, which we know is the statement that he is the Christ, upon this rock I will build the church. And then he closes that up by talking about giving them the keys to the kingdom. And that's a wildly misinterpreted uh, portion of scripture. Uh, Peter isn't standing at the gates of heaven, opening the gate for each individual that's going to be accepted into heaven and closing and locking the gate there. A similar thing, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, what you loose on earth will be loose in heaven, is made in that passage. We can't forgive sins that the Lord has not forgiven. This is a statement about their ministry. We, watching this morning, or whenever we get the opportunity to watch this recording, may be a person who is deeply burdened by our past. Something we've done, a sin we've committed, a sin we participated in maybe even for a long time, or maybe it was a sin that was so severe that we're you know, now to this day still grieved by our actions in those circumstances. And we're told by Christians and we hear from the Word of God that we can be forgiven, but within our own heart and mind, we're thinking, I can't be, I'm not. You know, something about what I experienced is so dark that I can't ever experience that forgiveness. If the scripture says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. And I can say to you that even though you're burdened beyond imagination, that Christ has forgiven you. I can tell you that, you know, 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You don't get to hang on to a sin if Christ has ripped it away from you. That's what's being said here. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now talk about the retained for a minute. Right? Just having a discussion this morning with a, a brother in fellowship who's talking about some other churches that he's had to experience and how they are teaching people that their sexual sin is not sin. 
The, the, the churches they're attending are approving, encouraging them to participate, literally encouraging them to participate in these sexual sins. You know, this is part of our culture. This is the way people think now. Oh, the Bible used to say those things, but we know better today is what they're saying and what they're teaching. They're encouraging people to sin. It doesn't matter how much those supposed ministers want to approve of people's sins and say, I absolve you of your sin. Their sins are retained. They're keeping their sins. Because they're holding on to them. They're continuing to participate in them. Now, if one of those individuals were to let go of their sins but still feel very guilty, I could say to them, no, you can't retain your sin. It's been forgiven you and washed away. This isn't some mystical authority that is given to the apostles to hold guilt upon a person or release them from it. This is a matter of, I have taught you, Jesus is saying, you know the truth of my ministry, my doctrine and my teachings, and I'm sending you out to teach people when they've been released from sins and when their sins are retained upon them. So Christ, even in His resurrection, is addressing the very message that they're bringing. Our gospel message is not one of absolution. We just get to give everyone forgiveness. You need to seek your Creator, confess your sins and ask His forgiveness, and then you'll find that freedom. It's a, it's a profound deception within our culture that many who stand in the pulpit teach false things to those who sit in the pews. So, here, continuing in verse 24, it says, Now Thomas called the twin, and listen, there's lots of opinions as to why he's called the twin. We really don't know. Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the prints of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Unless I see, Thomas says, I will not believe. We live in a culture that says seeing is believing. And I just want to tell you very adamantly that it's not true. Think about all the things that you've seen on the internet that you discover later were you know, very you know, clever editing. People had put things together to make you think certain things were happening. Yeah, I, and I, I was shown, uh, like I guess it was like a year ago, uh, it was a Bruce Lee with a set of nunchucks uh, playing ping pong with you know, another person, all carefully edited together. Uh, it never occurred. It's not a real piece of footage at all. They can do some magnificent things to trick the eye and cause you to believe things that aren't true. When we will believe... You start to turn your heart towards the Word of God and say, okay, I've been just stubbornly refusing to examine this thing. I, I, I've had all kinds of weird motivations for why I've rejected this, but I'm just going to step back enough to say, I don't really know. I'm going to examine this with an open heart and mind. You do that, and suddenly you'll begin to see things you never saw before. And that'll raise questions about other portions that you can then go and examine and discover. Believing is seeing. 
It's not seeing is believing. Surrender your heart to Christ and things will begin to happen. Verse 26, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the door being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. He's telling Thomas that he needs to trust in him. Something that will help Thomas believe in this moment is that Jesus was in the room eight days earlier, but Thomas was not. Jesus has not been in the room or in Thomas' presence since then, but now that he's with Thomas, he's speaking of the occasion where Thomas expressed his doubt as though he, Jesus, was in the room hearing him. Because he was. The omnipresent God that Jesus is heard what Thomas was saying. And notice this, notice this, he met Thomas where he was at. You got expressions of doubt? You got things that you're concerned about that you struggle to believe? Go straight to Jesus and ask Him to prove them to you. If you'll have an, an open heart to the work, ministry, and touch of Jesus Christ, I guarantee you that He will reach right back and meet you where you are at. Uh, this resurrected God is here to prove His resurrection and prove Himself to anyone that would seek Him. You know, you need to put your hand on my side? Well, let's do that. You need to touch my wounds? Then here they are available to you. Is there something in your life that you just absolutely were floored by that you need to understand? It seems as though somehow God is unjust, cruel, difficult, maybe even wicked, and you need Him to show you something about that so you'll have a different understanding about Him, ask Him. He's gracious. He's kind. He's merciful. He wants to communicate. Come, let us reason together, He says. Yeah, this isn't a God that's unreasonable, that's asking for blind faith. He's saying we can sort through these things that you struggle with. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Look, that is one of the most blatant statements in the Scripture. And we see it a few times that Jesus is God. He's speaking to Jesus of Jesus. You are my Lord and you are my God. There are many people that struggle with that idea that Jesus is God. That's how He was resurrected. He created human beings and He put in their presence the ability for them to live eternally. They rebelled against God, fell into sin, broke the relationship with Him. Since then, all of humanity has been trying to reach to God unsuccessfully. Go through all of these religious practices. Empty yourself of all this materialism. Become of one state of mind. All of these different practices that human beings put themselves through religiously in order to reach to God, to achieve heaven. God reached down and became a man, dwelt amongst us, and we rejected him. The human race rejected him and killed him. He resurrected himself from the dead to show, if you'll follow me, I have power over death. The thing 
which we're all trying to conquer. You know, we buy ourselves a juicer, we buy a membership to the gym, we go through all of these great efforts, and now we're going to introduce these supplements to our body, and now we're only going to eat these things, we're never going to eat those things, and what? 10 out of 10 people still die. It doesn't matter, you know, what level of face mask you're wearing. You're going to meet your demise at some point. Jesus is providing us with the resurrection. Power over death. Power over sin. Surrender yourself to it and you'll discover that in your own life. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's us. We have not seen Jesus Christ face to face. We have not seen Him in the flesh. We have not seen His earthly work and ministry the way that these did. But we are blessed in that we believe and we know the power and the work of Jesus Christ. Just to close this chapter out, verse 30, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Listen, just to close this out this morning, Resurrection Sunday, here you are watching this message, and John is saying right here, this book, this previous chapters up to this point were all written. He's saying, I I hand-selected these occurrences in Jesus' ministry in order that you might believe. This isn't all of the miracles. This isn't all of the work of Jesus. There was much more that went on. I'll talk about that in uh, just a second. But uh, this was written that you might believe. If something is happening in your heart this morning as you hear this message, and you're thinking, I should look into this, the book of John is the place to start, in my opinion. Anytime someone begins to come to the Lord in faith, and they ask me, you know, where should I begin reading in the Bible? Because the common sense approach is often to go right to the book of Genesis. Start at the beginning. Uh, the, the Bible is a series of stories. If you'll take the book of John and begin at verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word later says, you know, became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The beginning is described in the book of John. And John gives us a very miraculous view of Jesus Christ so that we might believe. If this message this morning has spurred your heart to know more about this resurrected King, this resurrected God, I would recommend that you get yourself a Bible and that you begin at the the book of John and you begin to let the Lord speak to you and you find a church to attend that would teach you the Word of God. They're going to open the churches up again at some point. This isn't a forever thing. We are going to be able to be around one another and maybe that's part of why the Lord allowed this to happen was to get people Two places on the internet and things of that nature where they would watch something like this. They never would have walked through the door of a church, but they'll sit down and listen to this type of message on an Easter Sunday. Let the Lord lead you into a greater understanding. All of these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. We're in chapter 20 in the very next chapter. I said I would mention it at verse 
25 of John 21, he says, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. There's much more about knowing Jesus and knowing who He is than perhaps we think. And I would say that to all of us. The more I read this book, I'm always, you know, kind of amused when I speak to people about the Bible and they say, oh, yeah, the Bible. I read that as though it's a book you can read one time. You know, I've read The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien, I think a total of four times in my life. And I get new things out of that book every time I've read it. You probably have certain movies and certain books you've experienced and read, watched, and listened to, and you get more out of them each time. This is, this is one singular message from God, the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the same message written by 40 different authors, three different continents, you know, 1,600 years, and it's one consistent message. I would encourage you to challenge it examine it look at it let the lord minister to you through it and you'll find that this resurrected king is changing your life changing it for the better giving you his peace right he appears to them after the resurrection and says peace be with you and that's what i would say to you this morning the peace of god is available to you through jesus christ's resurrection so that's the empty tomb and what it provides for us. Let's take a moment and pray as we close. Father, I thank you for our ability to be together here this morning, gathered around your word. I pray that whenever people get to watch this message, it would minister to their hearts, that it would lead them closer to you, that they would know you better for having watched it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. God bless you and happy Easter.